Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Alan Parry podcast, where I talk to fascinating people and then let you listen in. Today I'm talking to successful businessman Howard Northover about what it takes to be able to make money. Here he lifts the lid on what we need in order to be successful in business. He tells us his own lessons for making a living without a boss. But even more than that, amongst his clients are some seriously wealthy people and Howard has got to know them really, really well. And so he's discovered the things that all of his wealthiest clients have in common and I got him to share them with us and I guarantee that you'll never guess what they are. So listen in as Howard reveals how to get wealthy in five surprising steps. Hello, welcome to the show. Hiya. Uh, yeah, I'm glad to have you on, Howard, because, um, you know, I, I know that you're somebody who is very good at making money, and I'm less good at making money, should we say. So what I was hoping to do is for me and anybody else who who shares my incompetencies in this area might be able to have a little peek inside your mind and your processes when it comes to this, and uh, hopefully learn something by the end of the show. Well, with a bit of luck, I'll try to help you on that one, yes. So just to go into your backstory so people know a little bit about who you are and what you do, you're a, I would class you as a successful business person. And I would say that because you um, you run your own company, don't you? That's true. I've been running my own company since 1998. And I think more um, apt as well is that you actually spend your time with clients who themselves I would regard as as financially um quite affluent as well so you as well as having that skill yourself you're often around people many of whom have the same skill in terms of um making themselves financially comfortable shall we say that, that's one way of putting it actually alan phenomenally some of these people have actually made vast quantities of money uh, and been very very successful so i have learned quite a lot from them over the years having very successful clients and i've also asked them questions about how they've come to achieve that okay well that's going to be that's going to be fascinating because uh, at some point um i want to dig into that so not just get your own lessons but get the lessons that you kind of absorb absorb from your own clients absolutely Okay, well, well, the first thing I was going to say is, like I say, you're, you're good at making money. I've been less good at making money in my life, I would say. And I'd like to get better at it, really, especially as I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be financially independent and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to become a little bit more entrepreneurial in, in mindset than I've historically been. And mm-hmm. so my first question to you is really is that if I was your son, um, which would be odd because we're similarly aged. But <laughs> if if I was your son yeah. and I wanted to have financial independence and security and not have a boss myself, what what advice would you give to me? Well, the first thing that I would say is if you are going to go into business for yourself, just wanting to be a businessman is not enough. It's a very vague statement, totally nebulous, doesn't really take you anywhere. And what I have found, both with myself and my successful clients are, if you have a passion for doing something, you truly passionately believe in whatever it is, service, manufacture, making things, having ideas, if you truly believe in it and you can demonstrate to people that you are able to do these sort of things and it's something that they want, the money will follow. It, It really is that simple. So as long as you are... 
embroiled in it and you genuinely believe whatever it is that you want to do your business idea as long as there is a reason for that service or goods or whatever it is you're going to produce then the money will follow it's that simple but it's not going to be that simple along the light of the way there will be ups and downs so the first thing is to passionately believe in what you're trying to achieve that's the first thing that i would tell you so when you say passionately believe do you mean kind of you believe in the product or do you mean that you're actually tapping into a personal passion that you have well both ideally but at least one of those things uh the reason why i say that is because the people who've done very well with my company passionately believe in what we do they literally are embroiled in it so when we go to seminars and we discuss products and approaches and planning and that sort of thing they do passionately believe in it those people who don't really do struggle because then it 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 really is just a job somebody once said to me if you love the job that you're doing you'll never do a day's work in your life and it does make it so much easier people say it would be great to be a footballer paid to do what you love doing yeah but in business it should be the same thing if you hate your business your business is almost certainly handicapped from the day you've started so whatever it is that you do as long as you have an interest in doing it and you're passionate about it it really will follow well that really resonates with me actually so that's a message that I, I like hearing because one of the things I've noticed in my life is that and I've been blogging about this recently this whole attachment to outcome things when I'm kind of when I step out of alignment as I call it whereas I step away from my own passions and do stuff for the money that's when things don't really work very well um, and it's 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 when I step into alignment, and I, I say this to my friends as well, step into alignment, I've said it to my partner, and things do tend to kind of um, have almost surprising, um, what's the word, surprising outcomes when you're not trying for the outcome, where you're just being intrinsic and operating from a place of passion. I think, genuinely believe that if you only do something for the money, you're doomed before you even start, because there'll be occasions when the money will dry up it won't come in for whatever reason but your passion will never die yeah because it's something that you've you started off your journey with and it'll always be with you a great example of that are those people who might have seen me on facebook will notice that i like to buy brew dog uh, and they only started in something like uh, about 2007 is this and a real got, ale is it brew real, dog well it's craft beers real okay. ale, that sort of thing and they've literally gone from zero to hero they have been challenging some of the major beer producers in the world the major beer producers in the world have literally sat up and listened to what they say and, and it, they're called brew dog and they have punk ipa but they call it a punk approach which is having a passion for what it is that you'll do there'll be hard days but your passion for whatever it is that you're doing will see you through those hard days. If you're only there for the money, as soon as somebody doesn't pay a bill or a bill's not paid on time or a bill comes in that you weren't expecting, you, you, you'll be fall flat on your face and, and you will not be able to carry it off. So having a passion for whatever it is that you do is absolutely paramount. Okay, so that's a prerequisite, it sounds like. I've, let's say I've got a passion because I think I've got quite a few passions. What, what, what happens then? You know, I... Is it just simply the case of really follow it devotedly and, and the money will come or, or do you have to be a bit canny as well? Well, there's two ways of looking at this personally. Uh, I fall between both of them, but there's two ways of looking at them. And the reason why I fall between both of them is because I think that you can pull from either side. 
if you go down the tried and tested route of you have a passion, there's something that you want to do, you do your research, market research to ensure that what you want to do, people are prepared to pay for. And that is important. There is there isn't really much point in coming up with something that you're really passionate about that nobody really wants to buy or there's no call for it anymore. So that's that's the the best way of looking at it to have a more certain outcome and then have a business plan that fits around that. The, the, the brew dog punk approach is as long as you love something and, and you know other people are doing it, just do it anyway and forget about having any plans. But one, it's risky. Uh, and two, you'll find that a lot of an awful lot of people don't buy into it. So you're best having some sort of market research into what it is that you actually plan on doing. So if it's something completely new and entirely maverick, you might want to speak to some of your friends to see if they would actually buy whatever it is that you want to do. And if it's most businessmen uh, who are entirely successful don't actually go and in totally reinvent the wheel that that's very difficult to do and if you actually do so do something like that you need to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing is simply understood one of the lessons from that was when uh, steve jobs was going around with apple and he was up against a number of competitors such as sony who at that time were huge and what they were saying is oh our product can do this that and the other steve jobs just said the ipod it can hold 2000 songs yeah simple quick people understand it they call it the elevator pitch you can say it to a child in five seconds and they understand exactly what you're doing make sure that whatever it is that you're doing you can articulate very simply because you don't have that much time to articulate your your style your design whatever it is to people and you need to make sure that they understand it very quickly what one of the things when you're doing business do you you know when you're doing your market research do you do you actually have an ideal customer in mind? I'm, I mean, I'm guessing that you probably do by now because you know who your customers are. You've been in business that long. But do you recommend people start off with an ideal customer? Because I, I notice that when I'm advised to do that, I find as though I start fiction writing. You know, I'm just making some person up off the top of my head that doesn't necessarily bear reality. Um, so how, how would you advise someone to approach that? I do recommend that people design and you do use the word design their ideal customer and the reason why i say design is because at the design stage you can pretty much think of anything so in the same way that you're designing i don't know flying saucers however whimsical it might seem design what would be ideal for you mm. then see what that market looks like because at that stage you're only there with your paper and your pencil the reality of it all is somewhere down the line. So start off with what would be ideal. Don't start off with the, the, the idea at that stage that what you're looking at is so fa fanciful that you're never going to see them because you'll be defeated before you even start. Think of what it is that you want. Design your ideal client and then see if there's enough of those clients, customers who would be interested in your in your product or your service well that's an interesting way of doing it because i think when i think of ideal customer i always think well this is what i do who'd be ideal for that but you're almost saying and i like the sound of this you're almost saying find people who are ideal for you who you'd enjoy working with absolutely so, okay and then see whether they actually fit um the the stuff that you're doing or, or maybe even you can go back and exercise your passion in a slightly different way to, to meet the needs of that group? Well, 
it's funny you should say that because I bought the business in 1998. So even though, yes, I run a business, I did actually buy it from my predecessor. And I bought it in 1998. At the beginning of 2000, I was completely on my own. My, my, the guy that sold me the business had gone on his own, uh, gone his own way. And then I was, I can recall in 2000, sitting there, having a meeting with a client. And I'm think, thinking to myself, if you really aren't enjoying this as much as I'm not enjoying it, why are we doing this to each other? Yeah. So I also decided at that stage that I wouldn't have any clients that I didn't like. It's so difficult to deal with people that you don't like because at any business level, people deal with people. It's that simple. Yeah. Now, there are products and that sort of thing, and the internet brought all of this in, whereby you're comparing one identical product with another identical pro product. But in reality, people deal with people. So if you can't stand your clients then there's just no point in dealing with them. It's going to be so hard for you. The chances are you just won't be able to do it. So when, when you're thinking about that for yourself, what's your kind of ideal client? Like when you say there are certain clients that you can't stand, what was that for you? Uh, this particular client, unfortunately for him, he was just an irritant. And he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, genuinely. And he also had a thing against scousers, really, which was... It was a bit ridiculous, really. Because you and are it, one. Well, yeah, and that's unlikely to change. So <laughs> so all the scouser jokes and all that kind of stuff and, like, you know, hubcaps missing and all. And it just became just too much, just too much for me. So I thought, there is no point. There yeah. really isn't any point. So when I was designing my clients, it was like, we first of all felt that having them within a one-hour driving radius with a certain amount of money to invest because we work on investments. That made sense. If they were going to be in a greater distance, then they had to have more of, of more of a pull. They needed to buy more of our product to keep our margins up to make the traveling worthwhile. Or the, if they were not prepared to do that, then they would have to be prepared for us to deal with them electronically. That's the way that we looked at things because yeah. otherwise, even though you might be dealing with somebody that you absolutely love and the train journey to Plymouth is great because you can do loads of work on there, but you only actually earn £100 from him and you need to earn £200. You've had a great day, but you've just made a loss. So you still need to keep your eye on the money. So when de de designing your clients, something to do with where they live, how much they're likely to generate for you will give you an idea of whether or not they are your ideal sort of clients and traveling time came into it yeah. also because ours is a very personal business and we are based in liverpool if you didn't really like scousers that was always going to be a problem <laughs> that's not a huge difference but, but you know what i mean dealing yeah. with somebody who really didn't like scousers just didn't make sense so that was the obvious one there's loads of them to be but, frank, it, but it almost sounds like you're saying in order to be successful in business you have to design something which is enjoyable for yourself. I mean, obviously you need to contribute as well, but the the core of it is that you'll probably contribute the most where you're the most passionate because this is something that you'll be doing in your spare time sometimes as well as fun. And you want to be around people who are enjoyable to be around and you want to have the experience of doing the business to be an enjoyable thing as well. So you're not stuck, you know, in two hour drives or, or whatever that happens to be. It sounds like you're just saying, make this as enjoyable as possible. And then you'll stick the course. Is it about well, perseverance will. then? Uh, it is about perseverance because trust me, there will be bad times. There will be really bad times because there'll be occasions where you pitch for something. You think it's definitely going to be me. You don't land it and you feel 
devastated by it or you give away a freebie to land something and then they go away and do it with somebody else there are always darker days in business and hopefully there are more brighter ones than darker days but the darker days when they hit you if you're not prepared for them or if you simply don't have that passion they can be insurmountable Where, what role does psychology play in this because i notice in myself for the for the bigger part of my adult life i've had um i'd probably call it a mindset issue with money I mean, and you know, you know me. We we played music together because you're a great drummer yeah. as well, yeah. and and we've had some of these conversations. And I think that's held me back. You know, to an extent, I've felt that it's been something that I'm not allowed to have money. That I might be judged negatively if I did have money. I always seem to give it away the moment it touches me. Um, so I, I wonder to what extent does your mindset differ around the issue of money. There is an element of that. You'll find that a lot of people uh, do struggle with that. But the first thing to, to bear in mind is money doesn't care about you. Money has no conscience. It doesn't think that certain people deserve it more than other people. So it flows in the same way as water or electricity. That, that it, It's based upon economic theory, and, and that's what goes on. So you have to have a relationship with money where you're in control it doesn't have a respect for you so you have to have a control over it also as i've said earlier on if the only game in town the only thing that you're doing is about the acquisition of money so therefore you're you know you're avaricious over the whole thing then the reality of it will be that you're not actually doing it for the passion you're not being rewarded for your passion what you're actually doing is you're collecting greed yeah. so so that is probably the best way to look at it. None of my clients who have become phenomenally wealthy are actually that interested in money, believe it or not. They see money as being uh, how many goals they've scored. So, you know, in a football team, you want, you want to win, so you want to score more goals than you, than, you lo than you concede. And it's the similar sort of thing. So if you're passionate about football, you'll carry on playing the game and hope to carry on scoring. And it's the same with business. If you're just obsessed with the money, or you feel that money doesn't, you don't deserve the money, then you're doomed before you've even started because your reward for carrying out the goods or the service or whatever it is that you're doing is, is the money. And it's that simple. And if, if it comes down to the basis that you're, you're dealing with people who, whose attitude is, well, frankly, you don't deserve it, or you're, you're robbing us or whatever, then that will become a problem. So you have to have your relationship with money and not see profit as a dirty word. Without profit, your business is doomed. You have to have a margin. That margin is your profit. If you don't have a profit, then you, that's fine. If you don't want to have profits, but you're not running the business, what you're running, for there, something there for not-for-profit business or a charity, that's a completely different thing. So what's your relationship with money, do you say? Because I, I remember we had a conversation once and you said from a very young age, you kind of had a little look around the world and you thought, right, okay, the whole world seems to turn around money. So it'd be a good idea if I actually had access to it. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the way that I look at it. I, I don't condone those people. And there are some who literally want money simply for money's sake and that they're, they're prepared sure. to to acquire it through whatever means that that's scandalous because it doesn't do anybody any good because a business shouldn't exist just to make profit that might seem a strange thing to say but businesses have 
a moral and, a, and, and an ethical reason to look after its its customers and particularly its employees. So my attitude is, based. I think it was uh, Zaza Gabor who said, I've been rich and I've been poor, rich is better. Just wanting to... <laughs> just I didn't think you'd be on here to, quoting Zaza Gabor, I have to say, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> I think it was her. I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, wh- whoever it was who said it, probably yeah. feeling rich is better than feeling poor, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah. So... In those circumstances, I always felt that I wanted to have an ability to generate more money or to have some form of financial independence that that relied upon me rather than somebody else. Because if you are relying upon other people, to a certain extent, that's hope. Whereas if you're in business, you need to plan, not hope. So your your attitude to um, your attitude to to money then is kind of. Well, I guess you're you're seeing this almost as a way in which your contribution is appreciated and Absolutely. also ensures the and I think the contribution from what you're saying sounds really important to you, but it also sounds like what you're saying too is that that this is something that we shouldn't feel guilty about about having. Have you ever encountered someone and helped somebody to change their money mindset into something that's more like your own? Uh, well, we have done on a couple of occasions, but if you're not careful, what then happens is you wind up in the position where effectively you're doing charitable things and you have to be really quite keen with your own time and, and your uh, an investment of your time. So what another thing that some other people have said is that givers have to set limits because takers seldom do. Now, people very That's often ask for help. Well, it, it's true because if you're not careful, you will give away too much time to those people. You need to set limits on what it is that you're prepared to do and keep a focus on what you are capable of achieving. I spend a lot of time talking about what McDonald's do. and A lot of people laugh at McDonald's. McDonald's attitude is we do burgers. So the first thing is you ask McDonald's, what do you do? We do burgers. So if somebody strolls into McDonald's and said, two burgers and a pizza, please. Somebody doesn't run around to Iceland, pick up a frozen one, throw it in the microwave and say there you go they just say we can't help you with that and that's the best answer because pizza hut will do a better pizza for them so knowing your limitations and where you are able to help your customers is when you add value the whole point about being in a business is you need to add value to your customers once you add value you then need to find a way of collecting value in other words you do something for them and then they pay you a profit if you only take money off them you only take value then there's no point and if you only give value then there's no point either so good business rewards the customer as well as the service provider and so there's and a mutuality there isn't there's there? a mutuality there that both of you have an, a, a symbiotic relationship whereby both of you are gaining something from that relationship if somebody is only te- if it's only one way, it will not last. So if you're taking off the customer all of the time, eventually you'll find somebody else. And if he's taking it off you, you'll probably go bust. So it's vitally important that everybody in the model understands where they are and how they benefit from that relationship. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm just wondering how you actually spot whether an opportunity makes good business sense. So moving on from the psychology and maybe more to the kind of business savvy if you see an opportunity how do you assess it how do you evaluate it well there's there's two parts to it there's there's the first part which is the tried and tested sticking with your knitting routine and so 
having been with this particular company since the 3rd of March 1986, I have the world's shortest CV, I've had the same job for 30 years. In that time, you pick up wrinkles, call it what you will, gut instinct about those clients that are going to be simple to deal with and you, you will make a margin from them, you will make a profit. So that's the first thing, experience helps. And we have systems in place to say, we do this, we don't do that and, and that sort of stuff. Then there's the opportunity that comes up, which is something along the lines that you do, but you've never done it before. And having the bravado, should we say, to actually say, right, I'm going to do this and grasp it. Richard Branson talks about that. If an opportunity comes along, you say yes, and then you worry about it later on. I've actually done that and I've made money out of it. I've also done it, not made money out of it. So you have to you don't have to do it, but if you actually want to have uh, an opportunity come your way and make something out of it, you have to be prepared for it. So I've done both. You will, you'll have more predictable returns from doing what you do and sticking with it. Every now and then an opportunity comes along and you need to grasp it with both hands. If you spend time thinking about, is this an opportunity? Opportunities never slap you in the face and say, hello, I'm an opportunity. You literally have to be prepared for your opportunities. So when you do that, how do you assess the kind of potential contribution? Because if it's if it's brand new, um, well, obviously, it's probably not brand new. It probably links into your skills in some way. But if it's something that you've not done before and it's a new opportunity, like somebody asking for the pizza or McDonald's, for instance, McDonald's could actually say, well, this is an opportunity. So there seems to be a little bit of a tension there between kind of sticking to what you know and knowing that you can deliver a contribution and having this opportunity that you say yes to and work it out later and how do you manage that little that little tug of war well the first thing is how the opportunity is presented so in the first instance going back to mcdonald's and their pizzas i wouldn't expect any of the operatives in mcdonald's to take it upon themselves to run around and, and buy a pizza but if uh, Mr. Croc, who was the guy who was running McDonald's, not the McDonald's brothers, believe it or not, if he found out that enough of them had been offered, asked for pizzas, then he really ought to consider whether or not he should be buying the pizzas. But that's a huge game changer. So the example in my business was I had a particular client and they've been clients of ours for a number of years. And they said, look, we're, we're pulling out of the UK. We're only going to leave one guy here. And that'll be it, and it's all going to fold. And I said, okay, well, you're going back to your country. I'll run the business for you. And the reason why I said that was because I run my own business, and all I had to do was set up another business to run their business. Now, in percentage terms, it actually makes a huge margin. So I learned an awful lot from that. But if I'd have said to them, let me have a think about it, and mm. then gone away and asked somebody, we would never have had that opportunity. So I've now been running this business for the past 10 years, and it makes good margins. But I couldn't say, t now I said this to the next guy down from their CEO, so I knew I was in touch with a, with a decision maker. If you're not in contact when you're making a decision about doing something, if you're not in contact with a decision maker, then you're wasting your time. So in the McDonald's pizza thing, you're talking to the guy who's flipping the burgers and he says, you know what, another fellow asked me for a pizza last week. You don't run out there and start buying a whole pile of pizzas to set up McDonald's pizzas because you're not in touch with the decision maker. It's vitally important that you know who's 
pulling the strings so that when you're having a conversation with them, you are actually with somebody who's going to make a decision that's going to cause some call to action or some, something realistic will happen. That's the way of discerning one from the other. Okay. And how do you actually find new customers? Because I know from many of the people I know who are, who are trying to make it in business, that always seems to be the, the big difficulty, whether they're going business to business or whether they're selling direct to consumers. How do you actually go about this? Pro- and how, how have you gone about it over the past 30 years to keep the business afloat? That presumably has meant that you're getting new customers quite a lot. Well, it does. But, um, but in the first, well, the, the business started in 1968 and we really didn't do much in the way of prospecting. The reason being it was all done by word of mouth. So uh, it was set up by uh, a guy called Ted. And when sadly Ted passed away and I went to his funeral, I knew more people at the funeral than I knew at my own parties because our entire client bank turned up there. So it was all done by word of mouth. Now that word of mouth is starting to, not so much fritter away, but it's starting to be subsumed a little bit by the internet. Uh, and a decent internet presence for us is vital because people now always look on the internet. People, Google's gone from being a noun of a company to being a verb. Yeah. So you have, you have to bear that in mind. So, so what do in, you do in order to in order to ensure that these people find you as opposed to a competitor? Well, what we've done more recently is we've undertaken with a, a really high-brow marketing agency to do some market research and to raise our awareness in the right areas by doing campaigns for the sort of people who would be likely to be interested in what we're doing. Uh, I've also made sure... Are these kind of Facebook campaigns and Facebook advertising, that kind of thing? There will be something done on Facebook. Uh, there's not that much do- done on Facebook. There's been direct email and there's also been Twitter. And the reason for that now is because that sort of approach genuinely does generate interest. So going viral and all that sort of stuff does actually happen. And there are occasions where people have literally gone from next to nothing to quite to, to huge success largely based upon what's going around on the internet. Now, that's something that we can't ignore. Now, given our our client bank and our ideal client, we don't particularly feel that that's going to help us because we don't think that people with money to invest will sit there and go, oh, well, let's have a look on the internet and type it out. But that is starting to happen. So reacting to your market and being ahead of the market also makes sense. So we feel that presence on the internet, showing people, via the likes of social media, Twitter, Facebook, and that sort of thing, that we can do what we do uh, is also going to help us. But more to the point is, raising your awareness means that when somebody does give an introduction, when they look on the internet, they see the right things. So we say that we've been around since 1968, which we have. I've been here 30 years. And the things that we've seen in that time, we talk about those sorts of things because we believe that our service is largely based upon us providing you with a service that you can rely upon. I'm dealing with literally third-generation clients, so the grandchildren of the people that I started yeah. dealing with. And I think that that's important that you can rely on us, that we will still be here to look after you. The other thing that we, we also make out is that when you phone up, you don't have to press buttons and wait God knows how long, and then uh, then you have to quote your customer number. We have the, the face-to-face approach, and we know our customers. That's what, we're, that's what we're promoting. So to a greater or lesser extent, that is disappearing on the, the internet. But we still feel that that's an integral part of, of the business that we have. So we still need to promote that. 
Yeah, because that's something that a lot of, well, I, I guess a lot of your competitors probably are going down this more impersonal route that the technology does kind of, you know, help businesses go down that route, but you lose something in the process and what's lost, you're really pushing that really in terms of your own promotions. That, that's what we believe. Now, at, at the moment, we think that this is still the case because we actually can't cope with the level of demand. But that's partly because of the way that our industry has gone, if you see what I'm saying. So prices are being pushed down. Everybody's being told that you can do what we do, which is financial advising on the Internet, and it can all be done for free. And what you can pick up from the Internet is information. The interpolation of that information then becomes financial advice. So it's a little bit in our industry. The, the direct comparison that I would make is you can go along to B&Q and buy your paint. But if you don't pay for a paint and decorator or do it yourself, it's still going to stay in the tin a couple of weeks later. So you have to ensure that you are making the correct message. So what we're saying to clients is our message is that we'll take your personal circumstances and put together a plan that will help you live the life that you want to live without the fear of running out of money where your money goes, what it goes in, what taxes you pay, and that sort of that's our problem. But what we're mainly focusing on is the USP that we are here to look after you by looking after your money. I've read quite a lot about, um, in fact, I wrote a little bit about it because I've been reading about it, about multiple streams of income. And there's a guy named James Altitude who I like to read and listen to his podcast as well. And one of the things he repeatedly says is that he knows quite a lot of millionaires and he says that millionaires have on average about seven streams of income. And I'm thinking as well of a of a of um, an author, I think her name is Barbara Winner or Barbara Winter, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. And she talks mm -hmm. about this as well, having multiple profit centers, she calls them. To what extent is that is that true for you and your experience, both of yourself and of your clients? Is that something that rings true? Well, Partly, but it depends what sort of differentiation you talk about. Now, I could be wrong over this economically, but I think it's called brand elasticity, and that's the concept that your brand can do so many different things, if you see what I'm saying. And there's very few brands that can actually do that. So in terms of having different income streams, there are certain aspects that are different parts of our business that we undertake. So we'll do pensions, investments, life insurance, and we used to do mortgages, but we don't do mortgages anymore because we didn't see that there was a margin in it or the amount of margin that was in it wasn't worth it for us. So to that extent, if you are literally, you have literally one string to your bow, then you might have problems. So for argument's sake, a uh, company that makes BlackBerry, whatever it is in motion or something, uh, they were doing phenomenally well with the BlackBerry and then came under pressure from Samsung and Apple before, you know, who's buying blackberries so to a certain extent you have to have a differentiation but what you don't want to do is you don't want to diversify too much so sinclair for argument's sake great company great ideas had some great ideas in terms of computers okay the black watch wasn't very good because it used to blow up on your arm and the, sinclair, <laughs> and the sinclair c5 was possibly pushing it too far although what's the difference between a c5 and a segway so you have to bear in mind that it, there's no real argument to that you know you always have to have different income streams what you have to have in my opinion is different offerings for different times as the markets change and to know when the market is changing and that you are changing because if you take on board every last thing that's coming your way you won't do any business if you forget everything you will be out of business so 
you have to have, you mentioned it earlier on, there is this constant tension when you are in business. Because as somebody once said, changes aren't permanent, but change is. Yeah. So you have to keep on top of these changes and respond to them. You have to be able to decide which changes are going to affect you and deal with them and ignore those changes that aren't going to affect you. And that's pretty much the crux of the matter. And when you talk about brand elasticity, then what, what you're basically saying, I think there, if I'm understanding right, is that what a business person really needs to do is when they're having these multiple income streams, that when they're all basketed together, that basket makes sense. Yes. So as a musician, I might do um, original gigs, I might do cover gigs, I might release albums, I might do crowdfunding, I might get sponsorship. And they're all kind of different income streams, but they yep. all make sense in that basket of my brand as me as a musician. Absolutely. So you might be an absolutely outstanding hairdresser, but if you then say, and you fancy a bouffant, that's unlikely to go too far. I remember years ago when the video, remember video shops? Yeah. Oh, yeah. used to go in and rent a video. Yeah. Uh, there was a gentleman who was running our local video shop, and what he said was he was going to set up another income stream whereby he was going to give financial advice and sell pensions <laughs> in the same shop. So I said, well... If you just come in to rent the latest Terminator film, or whatever it was, I went in and said, you know, hey, have you thought about retirement? I mean, you might think about popcorn and Pepsi, yeah. but you're not going to think about your retirement. So it's that sort of thing, really, having income streams that kind of fit with each other. So eBay and PayPal make sense. Yes. So Elon Musk is now dealing with Tesla, which is car business it's sort of pushing him a different way if you see what i mean he's just gone off on one because he's discovered that some of his staff have been discounting on the price of tesla cars and he's gone bonkers over it to a certain extent that's because he's trying to bring in his own ideas and he's doing pretty well out of it but he can't control everything because he has a physical product as opposed to something else that, that was always internet based so you have to be aware that Having diversification does bring its own challenges. Yeah, sure, it would, it would have been a great idea if BlackBerry also were making, I don't know, televisions or something like that. But they didn't. And because they didn't stay ahead of the market, they were finished. Okay, so diversification is good, but the threads have to be kind of make sense to the, to the customer, really. Well, they do. I mean, Richard Branson's probably the ideal example of that because he has his different brands. So that do different things. So he has telecommunications, TV, and that sort of thing. Incredibly, also runs an airline and, uh, and a train business. But at one point, he had his own Coca-Cola. I think he still does. But it's kind of pushing it too far, if you see what I mean. Yeah, he seems like the exception, doesn't he? Because he's got he fingers in a million pies. Yeah, he is the exception. So, But having said that, he started out, his dad was a millionaire when he started. So, you know, that does make it slightly easier to start a business, <laughs> having a shed load of money behind him. So what are the lessons then from your clients? Because as, as we've said, you, you spend a lot of time talking to people who are really wealthy, some who are fabulously wealthy, and you're able to have an insight into their mentality, their processes, their business practices, and who they are. And you, you mentioned that they've actually given you advice. You've kind of um, you know, put this together for yourself in terms of what would, what would your clients do? If you could share any of that, what would be the... What would be well, the things you would share? Out of my uber successful clients, I, after a while, became friendly enough with them to ask them, you know, what did you think the secret of your success was? So what I did with all of them 
was I wrote down all of the things that they said, and then I made a list, and it's a very short one, of all of the things that all of them said. Okay. And only two, maybe three things came out of it. So if I share with you the two things. So this is kind of millionaires' consensus, really, on on what they all have in common. What, what, what all of them had in common, uh, what all of them did, uh, without exception. Okay. And the, reason, uh, and the reason why I thought that that was important was if there was something that one or two of them did, it didn't really make sense. But when the three of them, when all three of these things came into play, these people were phenomenally successful. So the first thing, believe it or not, that they said was that they felt that they'd been lucky. And I thought, well, that, that seems a fairly mercurial statement because luck's not something that you can actually go and buy or put a label on it. But when I drilled down on what do you mean by being lucky, what it really meant was that they were so well drilled in what they were doing, so well versed, so good. Their business acumen was so good. They were always prepared. So whatever opportunity came up, they seized those opportunities. So luck by... My realigned definition was being prepared for when an opportunity came along. So in terms of the actual opportunity coming along, that might have been a bit lucky, but they grasped that. They were open to that opportunity. Open to that opportunity. To what extent do you think that's a mental state where they're they're optimistic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I can come on to this a bit later on and talk about it now, but I actually read a study of luck which was almost hilarious, but it, it demonstrated the placebo effect of people's belief in terms of luck. Uh, so I don't know whether you want to talk about that. Now, yeah, that would be interesting. Yep. I've read something similar by Dr. Richard Wiseman, um, which looks at the science of luck. So it would be interesting to compare notes. Well, the particular story that I read, uh, and it was branded as being something of a white paper, whether or not it was, I don't know. But anyway, what happened was these two uh, investigators decided that luck wasn't quite the mercurial thing that a lot of people felt some people were lucky and other people weren't what they did was they went along to a business that had sales in there and therefore salesmen and they said to the the two owners look we're going to do a a study of luck and the way that we're going to do it is based upon the placebo effect which we're going to generate so they only told the two directors and then they said we're going to we need access to your sales force so they said, oh, yeah, no problem. So we go along to the sales force and they say, right, what's your name? So, what's your name, Alan? Oh, my name's Alan. And when were you born? Oh, a long time ago. No, no, what year? 1971. Not, not, not what, what, what month, sorry? Oh, February. February. I'll oh. give it away now. Everyone knows that I'm not 29. Knows, yeah. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> prepare yourself for the birthday card. So, <laughs> oh, you're born in February. Unfortunately, that's an unlucky month to be born. So never mind about that. So just make a note of that. And then somebody else would walk in. What's your name? Amy, when were you born? July. Oh, right. Well, that's a lucky month. So all that they did was they told people, certain people that they were lucky and other people that they were unlucky. And then they asked them to keep a list of their sales opportunities. So all the unlucky people came in. Do you know what? You were right. This went wrong. That went wrong. I didn't close this deal. The ones who were lucky. Do you know what? I'm glad you told me I was lucky because this deal came in and that deal didn't that that deal which i thought was going to fall through that came through and i was able to add on another ancillary sale so it tends to be it it, it's pretty much a mindset optimistic salespeople always do better because they're always looking for the opportunity those people who are pessimistic all they ever see are the bad side of things and it didn't quite work out and it's the same in so many ways so i think that bringing it full circle back to the the successful business people that i had 
Their attitude of being lucky was down to the fact that they were prepared and they were optimistic, but they vocalised it as being lucky. Well, it's interesting because I said we'd compare notes. The, the study that Richard Wiseman did is he well he got to a very similar conclusion because what he noticed through a number of studies, obviously everyone is nobody's more likely to win the lottery than any, anyone else, so not luck in that sense. But in the way that you've described it, he was saying that optimistic people, like the people who were described as lucky, actually had an awareness um, yes. of the possibility of the opportunity because they were optimistic. They were they were almost expecting it to be there, while the pessimistic people weren't expecting it to be there and were consistently missing opportunities in the experiments that they did. So there was one experiment very simply where they they dropped a five pound note on the floor and they got people, you know, unwittingly to walk past it. And the mm. people who were optimistic and and um, you know, felt lucky, they would see the fiver and pick it up. And the ones mm. who were pessimistic would walk right past it because they just <laughs> didn't expect it to be there. Exactly. So the first part that I discovered was when they said, they all said that they were lucky, but when you actually dug, uh, dug a bit further into it, what they, they told you was effectively that they were prepared. The second thing, which was... Well, before you go on to like the second that, thing, I'm just, I'm just kind of drawing a link to something you said earlier on. When you were talking about passion, we, we mentioned how persistence was something that you would, you would remain persistent if you were passionate about it in bad times. But I'm guessing that optimism does the same thing, doesn't it? I know that Martin Seligman had a had a book where he talks about learning optimism and he went into a sales team and he said to the bosses, look, don't be doing your um, sales recruitment this year from graduates in terms of how smart they are. Let us give them an optimism test and we'll pick the most optimistic. And what they found is they made more sales simply because they were more resilient, basically. Um, that when they were having no's and rejections, they just kept on going through and it's a numbers game and they were prepared to make 100 calls while the pessimistic people were so bruised that they'd stop, say, after 25. So it, it sounds like persistence is something that is a, is a key prerequisite for success as well, whether that be passion or optimism or both. It, it is. It, it, resilience does help because a pessimistic person, as soon as they have the first no, they think, oh, that's it, it's terrible. Whereas the optimistic person believes, well, that's just the first one. Eventually, somebody's going to see it. But yeah. the resilience carries you on. You know, the, I will reach the top of this hill. You know, it, it's not always going to be uphill. It will become easier. So putting the two of them together, resilience and optimism, becomes endeavor. And yes, that's... But there are overnight successes in business, undoubtedly. But even the likes of BrewDog, they had their dark times. And it's literally that simple. You have to be able to say, do you know what? A bit dark at the moment, but I'm going to make it through. And yeah. it's the same with so many other things in life. doesn't matter what you're running. If you're the head of something and you and you lose vision and you just, you're the figurehead and you just can't see it, your team, your, your management outfit, your company will all suffer. So what was the second the second thing that you, you spotted that all of these had in common? The second thing um, kind of struck me as being a bit funny, really, because I wasn't, I wasn't really prepared for it. And it was to do with partnership, you know, having a good wife or a good husband uh, for the successful businesswomen. They, they were all helped along the way in some way by a partner. So you, you know, mean so a romantic they, partner or a business partner or well, either? a lot of them actually in romantic partners. A lot of husbands spoke really favorably about how their, their wives helped, helped them out by doing things, you know, having the tea on the table or making sure that uh, 
you know, other things were sorted out. The the the, the business ladies, similar sort of thing, believe it or not, um, where they they would they would come home and the husband and say, "Oh, you having a bad day, have you, dear?" And he's made the tea, or let's go out for something, that sort of thing. So to keep the to bring the enthusiasm back into the relationship and just literally, you know, as they say, behind every good man there's a great woman. Similar sort of thing. I don't want to make it sound sexist because there was just no element of that whatsoever. The successful businesswomen, uh, although I must say that I don't have any, I don't, I don't think I have any same-sex uh, clients who've done really very well in business, but that, that's just the way that it's fallen out. Uh, all of them said that they had a good relationship at home because you don't really want to take it all home all of the time, if you see what I mean. You, yeah. you want to come home. And, and when I investigated that relationship, it was things like had a bad day dear yeah never mind let's go to the pictures here's a you know here's a nice tea or whatever it was it was making them feel a little bit better than the day had been well this reminds me of the harvard study i don't know if you, you know the harvard study but it, no. basically what they did they got um initially a bunch of people who left harvard um, and they also got um, some people from different backgrounds as well. Only men, unfortunately. They've only recently started uh, looking at women as well. But initially, because it's a really old study, they got men who left Harvard and or were at Harvard and, and men of different um, classes from the Boston area. And what they've done is over 75 years, they've monitored their lives. And so they're in a position now that those people are elderly where they can look back on entire lives you know hundreds of mm. lives and find out what actually did affect longevity what was success and they found out that the people who lived longer and the people who were wealthiest one of the key things that was a predictor of that was um that they had a relationship that they felt as though they could count on yeah and that that's pretty much what i'm trying to say although when when you're speaking to somebody about you know what do you think has helped actually telling them what you telling them what you think has helped doesn't really help if you see what i mean so i just literally would sit there not so much you know impassionately but literally listen to what they had to say so an awful lot of the time it was like knowing that when you go home you're not in for a roasting from the husband or your wife where have you been till this time you know because you don't really want that to make it even worse so, you know, that that makes a difference. And the third thing that they all said was they all had a trigger. There was a trigger. There was something that some sort of zeitgeist, if you want to call it that, some sort of barometer that in the business that they always kept an eye on. So if this happened to that, I would always do this. So for an argument's sake, one of my most successful clients, he had one particular account and each month he had to have £46,000 drop into this account. More than that was fine, less than that, and the alarm bells would go off. But he knew that if it didn't actually go below £20,000 dropping into that, he was fine. But the £46,000 figure was was magic. And he currently employs, I don't know, 1,200 people, turns over £31 million a year. But that's the way he looked at it, because you can't literally do everything. So you have to have some sort of triggers that you'll base it upon so that you know that your business is doing whatever, is either doing well or it's not doing well. So the, tr the trigger is a, a kind of fundamental metric, which, uh, so is that always with, with those, was it always acting as like an alarm or was it just something that was a kind of criteria where they might say, you know, for instance, there was a, there's an airline, can't remember which one in America and their whole USP was, um, you know, we want to be the cheapest 
And so when a new idea came up, they would they would assess it accordingly. They would say, well, how does this make us the cheapest? So if someone said, well, we'll do luxury food on the plane, they'd say, well, does that does that make us cheaper or more expensive? And then they would reject it on that basis. So is this a criteria by which they were judging things, or was it a trigger like an alarm bell? It was for the in this particular case, it was a trigger like an alarm bell that there was something that they always wanted to keep on top of. If you see what I'm saying, so uh, another client. Ironically, I phoned him up one day and I said, "Hi, Ray. You don't sound very happy." And he went, "Well, we normally have one bad job on the go, but today we have two. So he had psychologically knew that it was always going to be one bad job. But by the time he had two, he would literally stop what he was doing and do nothing else other than sort those out. So it, they were alarm bells. So <clears throat> there were other clients who had other metrics that told them they were doing well. But when I say I wrote down all of the things that all of them, all of them did and stuck to only the things that all of them did. All of them had a trigger, an alarm bell, something that said, hang on, whatever it is you're doing, stop. So you have a golf day, you're about to go on holiday, but this comes up, cancel it. Right. And they all they all had that. Well, that, that reminds me of the musician. I can't remember which one it was. I'm thinking it might be Van Halen, but I might be, I might be giving the wrong musician. Do you know the guy with the blue M&Ms? He would have it in his rider. Um, and a rider, for those who don't know music, is it's what an artist says that he wants in the in the back, you know, what sandwiches yeah. he wants and all that sort of yeah. stuff. He insisted on blue M&Ms. And so he, he got he got an undeserved reputation as being a bit of a diva because if he didn't have blue M&Ms, he would go absolutely nuts at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason he did that is because he was one of the first people to have very, very intricate and potentially dangerous sort of like sound and lighting setups and all these rigs built and then he'd travel the country and they have to be set just right. And he used to have like a massive document of everything that needed to be done for things to be safe. And so that was his trigger because if he felt that they'd been lax on the blue M&Ms, yeah. he used to go then nuts because be he'd think, oh, Christ, I'm going to have to check everything now. Whereas if he had them blue M&Ms, he felt, he felt relatively secure that everything else had been followed as well, even if it didn't appear to make sense. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter. Well, I suppose it does, but it doesn't matter to the rest of the world. As long as you know what it means and you stick to it and you've tried and tested it, then that's all you need to know. And how do you apply these to your business? Do you have a trigger that you're currently operating or is that kind of on your to-do list? Uh, no, I keep trigger as well. It's to, it's to do with, uh, again, it's just to do with financial, to be honest with you. Uh, and I just keep an eye on certain accounts and make sure that a, a particular, there's a particular amount of money that has to come in each month and where it comes from. And I'm all over it like a rash. Because uh, and what thing, does that look like, being all over it like a rash? What kind of steps do you take in order to remedy the situation? Uh, first of all, it's phone calls and and then if it's not sorted then it would be a driving drive round and sort out uh, but we've never really reached that stage because I've told people that you are genuinely in partnership with this isn't just like you're a bit of a customer we are yeah. in partnership so therefore we we demand that you treat it like a partnership with the respect that it deserves and this is what we expect by this day Oh, I see. So this is kind of late payment and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that sort of thing. I mean, because you can take on risk into a business for so many different reasons. One of the things that Brewdog says is 
you can't spend profits. You have to have profits, but cash flow is what you spend. You spend cash. That's the way of it. So in terms of... What does that what mean, you, actually? I'm not sure what that means. What's the difference between cash and profit? Profit is something that you generate and is not necessarily there. So I've done a load of work for you. I send out your in, my invoices for £100,000, which gives me a £50,000 profit. But if you take three months to pay them, yeah. everybody's standing knocking on the door demanding their money. I can't give them profit. I see. Business, businesses are obsessed with that. And capital is literally your lifeblood. Cash is what keeps you ticking over. I mean, Warren Buffett uh, said, quite simply, first rule of business, don't run out of money. It is that simple. So, you know, like... Uh, and his second rule of business was see rule one. One, yeah, literally. <laughs> it, it, it is that simple. So you can have all of the great ideas in the world and all sorts of profits kicking around and all that kind of stuff. But if you don't have the cash, you're basically snookered. So it's important that you keep on top of that. So it's generally speaking, a good idea to have some sort of metric trigger that involves having cash to be able to carry on going. Because without it, you're damned. If you were starting again now, what what kind of... So let's say you're a, you're a fresh-faced boy again, you know, just maybe like 22 or something like that, yeah. um, as opposed to the fresh-faced man that you are. What, yeah. what would you actually do differently? What would, you, what would you do from this vantage point if you were starting all over again now? Uh, the killer question, what would I do differently? Well, not necessarily even differently. I, I don't mean like go back over your life and change it. I just mean when you, when you assess what's happening now in the world in terms of business, what, what would you actually do from this starting point? You've got no history again and you're just going to take your first step. How, what would that first step be and, and what would be in mind as you, as you take it? I, I have to be diff very diplomatic when I say this because I'm not trying to suggest that you go out with all the arrogance in the world and tell everybody what to do. But I remember starting out and thinking uh, and having so much gratitude for certain people when things went well that they took advantage of that situation. So I would say if it's going to do anything differently, just ensure that everybody that you're in business with with and have a relationship with values it in the same way that you value it because when that tide turns it can be quite a nasty place to be and what financial kind of business advice would you give i mean i started off saying if i was your son but i know you do actually have children as well so yeah. what what's the financial and business advice that you'd hope that your own children follow as they get older and generally speaking what i try to say to somebody is that you have to bear in mind that you shouldn't really be risking any more money than you can afford to lose because more businesses go bust than actually succeed and probably the main reason for that is that they they start out without the desire and the vision but make sure that you have some sort of way of dragging yourself out of it so what's but your what's your approach to risk then i know richard branson talks about always make sure you cover your downside how, how do you look at it uh, similar sort of thing, really. I just make sure that we have enough to pay the wages because um, staff become very quickly unhappy if you don't pay them. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, so you know, make sure you're on top of that sort of thing. But the reality tends to be slightly different for most people in businesses. It's strange how many people will carry on stuffing money into businesses which are literally doomed from the outset. So if I was going to tell my sons what to do, not that they'd actually listen, but if I was going to go and do it, then I would actually say, as long as you're passionate about it and you have literally a lifeboat, and I don't mean that you have 
you know, pots of money skied away and that kind of stuff. You have a lifeboat, so if it all goes wrong, I can always go and do whatever. And it, and that could even be something like flip burgers and McDonald's or something like that. As long as you always have some sort of lifeboat, then that's all that you need. That's literally all that you need. Because so if you can cope with the worst case scenario, you, you're okay. Yeah. yeah, because that will then give you the desire, the will, the belief that you can go and do it. Because what one of the other things in business is it if you don't literally risk everything in your business as you're trying to promote your business, then your business won't really actually ever go anywhere because it'll just be too safe. So as soon as you come across somebody else who's prepared to risk, take that risk to push on, you almost certainly come second best. And that means you've lost the sale. Okay, I'm, I'm aware that we're coming to the end of our hour and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm just going to, this is what I've, I've got from it so far. There seems to be kind of like five key pillars, if you like, of advice that I've, I've taken from this as I've been making notes. And the first one I'd say is, um, and you can correct me here and then add anything to it. Uh, I think what you're saying is go with your passion. The second thing you're saying is enjoy it by doing work you enjoy with people that you like. Third Mm -hmm. one is be lucky by being prepared and optimistic. The fourth thing is have a solid relationship, somebody that you can count on um, in your hinterland once once you step away from the business for the day. And finally, have some sort of trigger that sets off an alarm bell for when things aren't going according to plan. And that seems to be the five things I've taken from that. Is there anything you'd add or change? No, I think that's just about it, really. I can't think of anything else. Uh, if I was to give myself that advice years ago, that I wouldn't wouldn't change that. Okay, so I think we're at the end of our hour. It's been fantastic. Is there anything you'd like to add before we close? Uh, only to the extent that if you do go along with this, setting up your own business, as long as you're passionate about it, it will go right in the end. All right, well, that's fantastic. I'm really grateful for your time, Howard. It's been really, really useful. Um, I think this is something I'm going to listen back to a few times, and I think people listening to this will get a lot out of it as well. There's a lot of uh, wise words and experience and a great insight as well into into what other you know people who, who you're dealing with, very wealthy people, are, are kind of giving us. And I, I wouldn't have guessed those things either. I wouldn't have guessed those things. So I think it's really interesting that you've come up with those kind of three things of be lucky, have a good partnership and have a trigger because I don't think I'd have guessed them if I was trying to do that on my own. So thanks very much. You're welcome. Great to speak to you. So a massive thank you there to Howard Northover for a really insightful, useful interview. I hope you found that as helpful as I did. If you'd like to have Howard manage your finances, then check out his company, ES Walton. You can find them on Facebook at ES Walton or on the web at eswalton.co.uk. If you enjoyed the show, don't keep it to yourself. Please tell all your friends by sharing it on your social media. And please give us a juicy five-star review too. Just head on over to iTunes, search for the Alan Parry podcast, and leave me some lovely stars. You can make sure you never miss a show again by subscribing, and that's completely free. You'll find all the details as well as today's show notes over at alanparry.com. And remember, that's spelled A-L-U-N. That's alanparry.com, where you'll find all of my past shows and my blog writings too. The show goes out every other Tuesday, so make a note in your diary, and thanks for listening.